journey. It is really, really great to see all of you. I want you to know that I've missed you. And if you're a guest and maybe haven't been around here very much, my name is Brian, uh, and I got to be one of the teammates who moved to Bozeman about six years ago to start this church called Journey. You believe that? We're like almost six years old. We're not like a church plant anymore. We're like all old and established and, you know, it just feels, uh, it's new. It feels new. And uh, speaking of established, I just wanted to tell you that Dana and I, my wife, we celebrated 11 years of marriage just a few weeks ago, and that's pretty cool. And uh, wait, 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 wait. Now, I really appreciate that. I want you to hear that. I really appreciate that. That's cool. But like save the applause for like year 30 or 40 or 50, right? Because 11, you know, anybody can make it to 11. But uh, the rest, uh, that's the real challenge, isn't it? And uh, it's a big deal that we made it to 11 because lots of you know I am a major pain in the butt. And so it's nearly miraculous that we made it this far. Dan has tolerated me. And she is a blessed, sweet woman for sure. And I also want to tell you that 11 years ago when we got married, I had this little conversation with God that I wanted to have two children. And I was quite emphatic about wanting to have two children. And I think God just sort of peered out of heaven and sort of chuckled like God does at our statements sometimes. He just sort of peers on like, ha, 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 ha. Because get this, there was exactly seven minutes in the year 2004 when we had two kids. We had two kids for seven minutes, right? Bailey was born in 2002, and then Dana, she got pregnant again. I don't know how that happened, but she got pregnant again. And well, uh, then uh, Dylan was born in 2004, February of 2004, and, and we had two kids, right? But then precisely seven minutes after Dylan was born, whoop, Preston came out. And, and it was like God has this fantastic sense of humor because we leapfrogged the whole two thing, didn't we? Went from one to three and sort of never looked back. Right? This is a picture of our family from not all that long ago. Yeah, there, there we are. Yeah, there they all are. Eee, woo. Blue shirt and yellow shirt on the outside. That's Preston and Dylan. They're the seven minutes apart. When Jasmine, the one who's cuddling up to Dana there, we call her our journey kid because she was born, uh, trying to be born in the midst of one of Journey's very first worship experiences ever back in 2005. And so we measure the years of Journey by the years of Jasmine's life. And well, she's a kick in the head, kind of like Journey is actually. So I've been thinking about all of that. And I've been thinking about all of life. And I've been thinking about what I'm calling life at the crossroads. Ever do that? Everything about life at the crossroads. And you all know full well what life at the crossroads are. There you are careening through life at an altogether too frantic pace because that's how we work. We have the accelerator. You've heard me talk about this before. We have the accelerator of our life mashed all the way to the floor, pedal to the metal. And you're going, 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 trying to keep your head above water. You've got jobs and bills and kids and serving and family and friends and sports. And you know the deal. And life gets going so frantically that we get mad sometimes, don't we, when stuff impedes on our progress. It happened to me just a few weeks ago. We moved over the course of the summer out a little south of Four Corners. And so I have to drive what I call the Huffine International Speedway with some regularity, right? There it is, five lanes, two lanes of traffic with a center turn lane. And uh, I set my cruise control at 60 on Huffine. I know the speed limit is 55, but I am a good steward of God's time. And so I set my cruise control at 60. Amen to the stewardship. Yes. Right? Uh, Though sometimes my good stewardship uh, helps me meet uh, Journey Church parishioners who drive highway patrol cars. 
And one time, a real nice guy came up to the window on the passenger side of my pickup and said, hello, pastor. I was like, oh, jeez. That was our first meeting, the very first time I ever met him. And he went gently, very, very gently on me. So one day, a few weeks ago, I was driving down Huffine, and I've got the cruise control set at 60. I'm in the slow lane. Because the slow lane, the right lane, that's for driving. The left lane, that's for passing. A lot of you Montanans, you don't know this, right? But the left lane is for passing. Right lane is for driving, okay? And, and, but lots of people, they just are like, yeah, this, look at this. There's wide open space in the left lane. Just, no. So there I am obeying the law in the right lane. And I see a car up ahead of me, kind of these businesses along Huffine there. I see this car that is contemplating, the driver is contemplating turning out in front of me. And I'm like, and I'm, you know, I'm a, I'm a couple hundred feet from where this car is about to turn out in front of me. I'm like, no, you're not going to really do, oh, you are really going to do that. I'm not going to tell you what kind of car I drive because it'll be embarrassing to me, but I drive a very large car, suffice it to say. And so I've got kids in the car and I kind of have to almost lock up the car to keep from ramming into this rather little car that pulled out right in front of me. And I was going 60, mind you. And I thought, like, well, maybe this person is really just going to get on the gas and, they're good, and it won't, it'll barely slow me down. No. 31, 32, these are miles per hour. 33, 34. And so I'm having to lock up the car that I'm driving. And then this person is just oblivious that they just turned out to what is almost an interstate. They're talking on the phone, you know, just driving along. 39. 40, and now I can't get around them in the passing lane because some other people, they're actually using it and they're going by me at a rapid rate of speed and there's no break in the traffic for me to get around. And so I'm kind of stuck behind this car and me and Jesus, we had a little moment. And suffice it to say that Jesus did not win the conversation because in the middle of the steering wheel, there's a very large button and I just laid my hand hard on it. It's the horn and I'm, you know, about this far off of this car's bumper, and I'm honking the horn. Ah, and I got the kids in the car, and they're like, Dad, Dad, 42, 43, person just talking on the phone, 44, and I'm still honking, mind you. And the kids are like, Dad, stop, stop, you're like, oh, I'm holding the horn, and, you know, 48. 49, and all of a sudden I had this fleeting thought, what if this person is a part of our church? I was like, no, a journey church person would never do something as rude as this. Like we're kind, courteous, loving people who obey traffic laws and no, certainly not. I'm still honking the horn, mind you. Finally, there's a break in the traffic, and I veer into the left lane, you know, one of these, you know, and the big car has body roll, you know, goes like that, and so we go out, and I look over, and oh my gosh, she's part of our church. I don't think she is anymore. I duck so fast, I'm like under the dashboard trying to drive, you know, and I was gone. I don't see her here today, actually. Has that ever happened to you? I am an awful person, right? I mean, I, like, really, like, come on. Like, life isn't that fast-paced that I have to act like that, but we do it anyway, don't we? Because we feel somewhat rewarded when we run 
at that very, very intense pace. You get this adrenaline feeling coursing through your veins, your internal motors racing, racing faster and faster. It's fun, it's exciting, it's exhilarating. And I want you to hear me real clearly. It is tragic. It's tragic. Because that kind of life, that pace of life, leaves altogether too precious little time for taking what I call life at the crossroads seriously. Socrates is his name. Some people call him Socrates, but his name really is Socrates. He said it very, very well when he said, the unexamined life is not worth living. The unexamined life is not worth living. And he's right. Because when we run at that same intensive pace day after day after day, we're left with precious little time and space for thinking about the crossroads moments of our lives. We aren't left with any time or space to consider how the choices that we make or the choices we ignore or the choices we procrastinate in the crossroads moments of life actually affect the rest of our lives. And frankly, watch this, the lives of a whole lot of other people as well. Our choices don't just affect us, they ripple out and affect other people. I did a little dictionary work with the word crossroads. I found a few definitions. First, it's a road that crosses a main road or runs cross country between main roads. We know that. It is the place of intersection of two or more roads, duh. A small community located at such a crossroads, okay, it's a central meeting place, all right. But watch this one. A crucial point, especially where a decision must be made. A crucial point, especially where a decision must be made. That's the one, isn't it? So we're careening through life, we're trying to keep our heads above water, and we come to these points, and they aren't just minor points, they're absolutely critical points, especially where a decision must be made. Crossroads, and you've got one going right now, don't you? You've got one going right now. We all do. We all face them. And those crossroads, they can set the course of the rest of our lives, no pressure. No pressure. But they set the course for the rest of our lives but they also set the course of other people's lives because the choices, get this, that we make in the crossroads moments of life decide some things for some other people as well. It is not just about you. As I've been reflecting on these crossroads moments, I've been stirring on them through the grid of what probably is a familiar passage of scripture to you. Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 17. You can turn there if you've got a Bible. Mark 10, starting in verse 17. Let me read this to you. As Jesus was starting out on his way to Jerusalem, a man came running up to him, knelt down and asked, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good, Jesus asked. Only God is truly good. But to answer your question, you know the commandments. You must not murder, you must not commit adultery, you must not steal, you must not testify falsely, you must not cheat anyone, honor your father and mother. Teacher, the man replied, I've obeyed all these commandments since I was young. Looking at the man, Jesus felt genuine love for him. There is still one thing you haven't done, he told him. Go and sell all your possessions and give the money to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. At this the man's face fell. And he went away sad for he had many possessions. And this is a great narrative, isn't it? And it is also a terrible narrative. And I'm hoping, I'm praying that God would actually use this text from his word to shape the way we approach, the way we think about, and the way that we all consider the crossroads moments in our lives and how our choices affect others as much as they affect us. Because here's the thing. 
God has invited every last one of us to get on board with his redemptive movement right here on planet Earth. Being a follower of Jesus Christ is not just about heaven someday. It's about bringing the kingdom of God right here and right now. God did not just save you. He did not just send his son Jesus to save your soul so that you could fill a church seat until Jesus comes back and you get to vanish out of here and go to heaven, not even close. He actually has an expectation on all of us to be a part of bringing his kingdom right here and right now. And get this, there's a consequence and there's a price for walking away from that invitation that God makes to all of us. There are consequences and there is a price to be paid for ignoring, denying, rejecting, saying no to God's invitation on our lives. And it's a price in our life, yes, but it's a price in other people's lives as well because it's not just about us. And God's straight up challenge to us today is very simply, will you say yes? Will you say yes? At the crossroads moments of life, that God brings your way, will you say yes? Will you get in and will you get on with God's unfolding redemptive movement or not? Are you in or are you out? And you know this story. Some people call it the story of the rich young ruler. It might be sort of headlined in your Bible that way. But it really doesn't matter what it's called because what we know from the very first words of this exchange, this isn't going to be ordinary. What goes down here is going to be significant and life-altering. And so you get the scene. The rich young man actually runs up to Jesus, which that's a big deal. Rich people didn't run in Jesus' day, but he runs to Jesus. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, this address, good teacher, that was an exceedingly rare address in Jewish culture. And I want to tell you what's in view there. This rich guy, see, he's attempting to flatter Jesus. So here's this rich guy, here's Jesus, the son of God, right? And he's attempting to flatter him. He's sort of trying to inflate Jesus' ego with, I don't know what else to call it, other than a brown nose compliment. Why? Because he wants one back. Because you see in ancient culture, one compliment required another compliment. It sort of was a dueling compliment sort of thing. Mutual admiration society. You know, people do that sometimes. No, you're the greatest. No, you're the greatest. You're the greatest. No, you're the greatest. And Jesus is like, uh-uh, I'm not playing this game. I'm not playing the blow sunshine up your tunic game. <laughs> not doing it. Jesus doesn't oblige him. He doesn't address him with any title What? Soever. I don't know about you, but I absolutely hate it when God bursts my bubble. Does God ever burst your bubble? Does that ever happen to you? How many times, think about this, how many times in your life, if you're anything like me, you've done this, we come to God with this sort of flowery, over-the-top, sort of brown-nosed language because we're trying to flatter God into doing what we want him to do for us. We have grand plans and we have these great schemes for how God's going to move and he's going to use us and we're going to be a pretty big deal. And so God, would you just do my thing, please, good teacher, would you get on that? God, I want to be as cool and I want to be as big and I want to be as special as you are. And God's kind of looking back at us going like, what are you doing? He does it with me, with some regularity. Kind of like what Jesus does with this guy in Mark chapter 10. Just totally puts a pin in his bubble. I'm not playing the brown nose compliment game. Why? Because God is good. 
Only God is good. Only God is good. And I want you to know and I want you to hear loudly and clearly today that God could not think of you and he could not think of me in any more high regard than he does right at this moment. He loves you immensely. He loves you so much that he actually sent his one and only son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for you in your place, taking your guilt, your shame, your punishment, paying your price. He did that for you because he loves you. And then in light of what he did, because of what he did, we have this astounding place of honor in continuing to partner with God in his unfolding redemptive narrative. The bringing of the kingdom of God every single day. It isn't just about 75 minutes on a weekend. It's about bringing the kingdom of God everywhere you go, every person you're with. And in light of who God is, in light of who God is, we're not nearly as big a deal as we sometimes think we are. Only God is good. And then Jesus moves on and gets to the guy's question. Remember the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? In Mark ten nineteen, Jesus gets at it. But to answer your question, you know the commandments. You must not murder, you must not commit adultery, you must not steal, you must not testify falsely, you must not cheat anyone, honor your father and your mother. And you sort of get this sense of the rich guys just standing back there going like, duh, Jesus, tell me something I don't already know. All you're doing there, Jesus, is quoting from the Decalogue. What's the Decalogue? Deca in Greek means what? Ten log, what? Word. Logos. All Jesus is doing is quoting from the ten words. What are the ten words more commonly known as? Ten Commandments, right? All Jesus is doing is restating the ten, ten Commandments. Excuse me. And it's his way of saying to this rich young man, dude, you already know what you're supposed to do to inherit eternal life. Just keep the Ten Commandments. Wait, though. Just a minute. Go back through what Jesus just quoted there from the Ten Commandments. Look at the verse again. But to answer your question, see if anything jumps out at you. But to answer your question, you know the commandments. You must not murder. You must not commit adultery. You must not steal. You must not testify falsely. You must not cheat anyone. Should stop you right there. Why? Because that is not one of the Ten Commandments. You must not cheat anyone. Thou shalt not cheat is not, not one of the Ten Commandments. And so you see what is in view is that Jesus is actually taking a moment to call out those who participate in the economic exploitation of the poor. He's calling them out. And he's calling out this rich young man who's standing right in front of him. You're a cheater, Jesus says. It could not be any more clear. In the Greek, the words that Jesus uses in that phrase, you must not cheat anyone, refers to the act of keeping back the wages of someone who has been hired to perform a task. So they did the work, but you did not pay them. And Jesus is getting real personal with this rich dude because inherent in Jesus' words is this accusation that this guy, this rich guy, had cheated his way to every single thing that he had. Sure, Jesus says, you haven't murdered anyone. You might not have slept around. You might not have stolen in the strictest sense of the word. You might not have lied. You might have honored your father and your mother, but you have cheated your way to the wealth that you have and you did it by exploiting the poor. And I am not okay with that, Jesus says. That is not okay. 
And the rich dude's standing there so arrogant that he misses the whole point that Jesus is actually talking to him. But it's the very same point Jesus has been making since the very start of the conversation when he says, look, dude, only God is good. And the rich guy misses it again. So let me back up just so we're on the same page. Rich guy runs to Jesus, asks how he can inherit eternal life. Jesus says, look, who you calling good? Only God's good. To your question, though, keep the commandments. You know the deal. Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't testify falsely. Don't cheat anyone, cheater. Honor your parents. And you sort of get this sense that the rich guy is standing there kind of rolling his eyes as Jesus is talking to him. Look at how he answers him in verse 20. Teacher, the man replied, I've obeyed all these commandments since I was young. And Jesus is going, no, you have not. You haven't. No one but God is good. No one, not even you, has kept all these commandments. And the guy's going, well, I'm good. I have two kept all those commandments. I got a checklist and a report card right here. I've given myself all A's. Want to see? And there's something very, very subtle that this guy's doing. He's actually inserting himself into some incredibly elite company by telling Jesus that he has lived perfectly under the law. Let me explain that. The Talmud is the Jew's sort of guiding document that explains what the scriptures mean and how to interpret and apply all of the laws. It is not easy reading. Someone was asking me the other day, hey, I saw this book called the Talmud at the bookstore and I wondered if I should get it. And I was like, well, sure, if you want to drive yourself crazy, help yourself with that. This is not at all easy reading. Uh, They say that the Talmud actually reminds you, check this out, of someone else's notes taken from a college lecture that you never went to. How many of you know exactly what I'm talking about there? Raise your hand. Yeah, mm mm-hmm. See all of you. It's like, what, the second week of school or something like that? First week of school, you're already skipping classes, reading someone. Ah, I'll get their notes. That's what reading the Talmud is like. But in the Talmud, I'm telling you this to tell you that in those documents, watch this, Abraham... Moses, these are big names, aren't they? Abraham, Moses, and Aaron, they're reported to have kept the whole law. They're reported to have kept the whole law. They kept all 10 words. Abraham, Moses, and Aaron, and this rich guy standing there talking to Jesus very arrogantly, very matter-of-factly, without even breaking a sweat, inserts himself into that very same quite exalted company. I'm good. I'm as good as Abraham, Moses, and Aaron. Put my name right after theirs. Abraham, Moses, Aaron, and Richie Rich, whatever you want to call him. I don't need to be reminded of the law, Jesus. I've got it covered. And some of us, we think that we've got it covered too, don't we? Some of us think that we've got the righteousness thing down. Some of us, we think we're good enough. We become sometimes just like this rich guy, don't we? We start keeping score and we're like, yeah, I've done that good thing and that good thing and that good thing. I'm going to get some credit for that. And I'm not as bad as so-and-so. We got a name in our head, don't we? Haven't done what they've done. And so I'm going to get some points for that one too. And then, oh yeah, there's that one. I'm going to get some more points for that. And don't you imagine... That sometimes in those moments when we're extolling the virtues of our goodness, that Jesus does the very same thing 
that I imagine he did with this rich guy in Mark 10. You just sort of imagine Jesus in your mind's eye. I imagine Jesus sort of stepping back and sort of shaking his head. You're like, oh, man. Oh, man, Brian. You have no idea how much you need me. You just see Jesus doing that? You have no idea because you're not even close to being good enough. Not even close to being good enough. The scriptures say that our righteousness, our good deeds, they're what? They're like filthy rags in comparison to God's goodness, who God is like filthy rags. And we hold our filthy rags up to God and go, see God, I'm good enough. And he shakes his head and he goes, oh, you have no idea how much you need me. And we can easily imagine Jesus shaking his head. The scripture gives us this rare glimpse into exactly what Jesus is feeling toward the rich guy in that moment. And it is the precise same sentiment that he is feeling toward you right here, right now, today. And here it is, Mark 10, 21, looking at the man. This is so cool. The feelings of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, revealed on the pages of Scripture. The feelings of God. Jesus felt genuine love for him. Jesus felt genuine love for him. And that's exactly how he feels toward you right here, right now, today. He could not feel any more strongly in love with you than he does right now. And it isn't like a fake love. It isn't all saccharine and artificial. It is as real as it gets. It is the love that defines love. He felt it toward the rich guy. As arrogant as he was, as full of himself as he was, and he feels it towards all of us. And then Jesus says this, there's still one thing you haven't done. Go and sell your possessions and give the money to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. And this right there is this man's crossroads moment. That's it. His crossroads moment. Jesus says, look, I love you and you're not good enough. I love you. You do not have it all figured out. I love you. There's one thing you haven't done. Go sell it all. Every single last bit of what you have. Give the money away. Then you will have treasure in heaven and that's the place where we want to have treasure, isn't it? Because down here, thieves break in and steal it and moths chew through it and it rusts and it decays and blows up in a stock market crash. And, you know, you will have treasure in heaven then. And then come follow me. Whoa. And just like the rich guy, you and I, we have this choice, the very same choice to make at the crossroads moments. Are you in or are you out? Are you going to get in with God? Are you going to be a part of his unfolding redemptive plan by doing something that some people might term radical? Or are you going to be like this rich guy? Look at what he does with Jesus' invitation at the crossroads moment. At this, the man's face fell, verse 22, and he went away, what? Sad. For he had a whole bunch of stuff. He had a whole bunch of stuff. Are you going to say yes to Jesus at the crossroads moments? Are you going to say no, Jesus? The price is just too high like the rich guy did. 
And we're a lot alike, you and me, us. We're all about the same, aren't we? And we all do this. Jesus invites us to do something, to get in with him at the crossroads moment, and we count the cost and we say, no, it's too expensive. We count the cost of doing something radical that Jesus is asking us to do, and we say, no, I can't do it, I won't do it, and then we walk away, and that's a sad moment. And it's sad because you miss out. Because the greatest thrill in the entire world is being a part of God's unfolding redemptive narrative. Nothing else is a rush like that. Being a part of eternal transformation, forever transformation in the lives of people, nothing even comes close to it. And so when you walk away from that, that's sad. And this man knows that. But can I tell you what I think is really sad? This is just me. I dare say it might be God. I'm stepping out a little bit to say this. Our no at life's crossroads moment, it's actually incredibly sad in the lives of a whole bunch of other people. Why? Because you see, God is calling you in the crossroads moment to partner with him in his unfolding redemptive narrative. And when you say no, you're making a choice for some other people that God wants to use you to conduit his stuff to. It's expensive for other people too when you say no. Because God wants you to bring his redemption to people. And when you say no, that's sad in their life. And I know I'm messing with theological sensitivities here because all of us go, God is sovereign. And I say that, yes, God is absolutely and entirely sovereign. And he's gonna do what he's gonna do. But guess what? He wants to use you. The invitation is to you for the life of someone else. And when you say no... I dare say that creates sadness in other people's lives because they're missing out. They need Jesus, but you won't give him to him because it's too expensive. I don't want to share my faith with my roommate because, well, I don't want to tip my hand that far. What will he or she think of me? I don't want to invite my neighbor to my small group because what if they reject me and they're too expensive? I don't want to pray with my coworker who's unraveling at the seams because that's uncomfortable. No. You saying no is sad for you, absolutely. But think about how incredibly sad it is in the lives of other people whom God wants to use you to influence eternally. Eternally influence. And so can I ask you this question? What redemptive stuff might God want to do through your life and the lives of lots and lots and lots of people if you'll just say yes at the crossroads moment that he's laying at your feet? You can stop today, once and for all, going away from those crossroads moments sad like the rich guy did. You can stop leaving other people in your world sad because of what they're missing out on that God wants to conduit through you. Just start saying yes. Just start saying yes. Some of you I know were around the Global Leadership Summit a few weeks ago. If you were, you were introduced to the ministry of a woman named Mama Maggie Gobrin. Mama Maggie, Maggie, she's affectionately called, she led a very comfortable life in Cairo, Egypt. She's a Coptic Christian from a very prominent Egyptian family. She taught computer science at Cairo University. And one day, some time ago, she had a crossroads moment. And Jesus invited her to start a ministry to serve the very poorest of the poor in her city. And so for the last 20 years, that's what she's given herself entirely to watch this.
Egypt is a country filled with ancient treasures, wonder, and history. It's also a desert, so it's hot. And its capital, Cairo, is densely populated with narrow, crowded streets. Oh, and the country is surrounded by some of the most volatile nations in the Middle East. Then, earlier this year, the government was overthrown amid civil resistance, demonstrations, and violence. To this day, Egypt is governed by their military, and the protests continue. Now, picture an entire group of people who eke out a living by collecting, sorting through, and storing the trash produced by this city of 20 million people. The metal, plastic, glass, and paper they collect can all be recycled for a few pennies, and a meal often consists of discarded food scraps and moldy bread. Some store the trash where they live. Others don't even have a home. They lack everything. And their identity as Christians means that they're shunned, even persecuted by the Islamic majority. Without basic education, hope, or someone to believe in them, it's unlikely that they'll ever experience life any other way. Maggie Gobrin, born into an upper-middle-class family, taught at the American University in Cairo, where Egypt's brightest could receive the best education in the country. But when her aunt, who had spent her life serving the poor, passed away, Maggie felt drawn to help fill the void that was left. The following Christmas, she visited a dump with gifts for the children. There she found them, sleeping amongst and inside the piles of rubbish. Resolving to do something about it, Maggie set up Stephen's children, named after the first martyr. Their purpose? To seek and to love those at the very bottom of the social scale, the poorest of the poor. Stephen's Children takes a holistic approach to serving families all over Egypt with their spiritual, material, educational, physical, and social needs. They provide emergency relief, whether that's food, medical bills, or critical home repair. They also assist with education and job training. Stephen's Children has over 1,400 staff members, serving over 27,000 families weekly. They operate 80 community education centers, which offer medical clinics and outreach to mothers. Each center hosts a kindergarten where up to 600 children are cared for at any given time. Here, they get food, health checks, clothes, and a Christian education. Thousands of children have accepted Jesus as their Lord and Savior as a result of the ministry. Mama Maggie, as she is affectionately known, has been referred to as the Mother Teresa of Cairo. And sources indicate that Mama Maggie has been nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize at least three times. But every chance she gets, Maggie Govern points out the success of Stephen's children and the efforts of its volunteers and donors is solely due to God's blessing on their work. You see the faces of the people who would have been left sad if Mama Maggie had chosen to say no at the crossroads moment that God offered her. But because she said yes, look at the life 
Look at the fruit of what God's choosing to use her to do and be a part of in tens of thousands of people's lives. All because she said yes. She said yes. And it was costly. It's expensive. She's counting the cost to this day. But she said it was worth it. I'd do it again. Our family, the Hopkins family, we faced a crossroads moment just a month or so ago. Lots of you know that around here we're part of a very cool ministry called Summer of Hope. We help bring orphans from Ethiopia, from the Philippines, over for about five weeks in the summer, and then we host them with families who are at least moderately interested in adopting, and the families sort of get to test drive what adoption would be like. Children have a chance to come over here and connect with people who might adopt them, and if that doesn't happen, they get the chance at the very least to get a reprieve from orphanage life. They get to play and have fun and meet people who love them and care about them, and Summer of Hope program has about an 80% success rate, which means that about 80% of the kids that come over for the summer get adopted, which is absolutely fantastic. This summer, there were about nine kids who came over from Ethiopia and the Philippines, and it was fantastic. Our family, we dropped in on a couple of those picnics that they host where host families and families who might be interested in adopting all mingle over dinner and have a great time in the evenings a few times uh, over the course of the time that those children are here. And so we went to a couple of those, and Our 12-year-old daughter, Malia, who's adopted from Ethiopia, she met the girls who were from Ethiopia for the summer, and they connected, and she started hanging out with them more and more. She started hanging out with one of them in particular more and more, and I'm not supposed to tell you her name because I could get in trouble, so, uh, so I don't get in trouble, I'll call her Addis, because that's her name. I'll call her Addis. Her name is Addis, and Addis and Malia, they connected. Addis is also 12, and they kept hanging out, and she was coming over, and they connected, and Malia was just lit up. It was like Addis had awakened something in our daughter, Malia. And I saw Dana sort of doing some detective work, and she was snooping and found out that Addis' host family had no intention of adopting her, and there was no one else that Addis had met over the course of the program who was going to adopt her, and I was catching bits and pieces of her story. She's been in an orphanage for 10 years. She's 12. She went into that orphanage when she was two years old, a decade in an orphanage, and no one has adopted her And it appeared to us that even after the summer of hope, that Addis was going to go back to that orphanage with no hope still of God helping her find her forever family. And I could feel the tug of God on my heart around Addis. And I was like, oh boy. I found out later that Dana was feeling that same tug on her heart for Addis. And she was going, oh boy. And so... Just a couple of days before Addis was going to leave with the rest of the kids to go back. Because whether they're being adopted or not, they've got to go back. And the process begins of adoption, should that be the course that all of that takes. Just before they were to go back, I finally, a couple of days, I sort, sort of tiptoe, like the strong leader I am. I sort of tiptoe in with Dana. And I said, honey, honey so just real casually, like, honey, do you think we're supposed to adopt Addis? Real casually. And Dana just about came out of her skin. Yes, I do. I don't want to say anything, but I guess I think we're supposed to. And so we had this crossroads moment right then and there, not at all unlike the one that Jesus offered to the rich guy in Mark 10. And I was doing the math. We have seven, seven kids already, seven kids. And I counted the cost. It takes about 25 grand to adopt Addis. That money, we, we, we don't have that laying around, frankly. And then I'm going like, it got sort of more serious 
Like, Lord, what about her past? Ten years in an institution does horrible things to people, and are we equipped to deal with the repercussions of that? Lord, can I be a good dad to the seven kids we already have, let alone an eighth? And we had this crossroads moment, kind of me and Dana and Jesus and our family, the kids. One night we sort of hosted this family summit around the kitchen table. We asked all the kids what they thought about us adopting this girl I'll call Addis, because that's her name, Addis. And there was sort of this resounding yes from around, yes, we should, yes, we're supposed to. And then a couple of our kids, they did the real quick math, and they're like, Mom, Dad, if we adopt Addis, we'll still have five more seats in the van. We should fill it all the way up, Addis plus five more. And you laugh. It's easy for you to laugh. And so we're counting the cost of God's invitation to our family, this crossroads moment to adopt Addis. And I was smack dab in the middle of ruminating on this text. And one day it just hit me and I was like, God, I don't want to go away sad from this crossroads moment. I don't want to be like the Mark 10 guy. I don't want to leave Addis in that orphanage for God knows how much longer while she prays fervently with all of her heart, longing for a family to come and take her home to her forever family. And God brought us to this crossroad moment. I realized, God, this is of you. You're inviting us to choose your way. And so, God, we're choosing to say yes to you. We're choosing to say yes to you. We're going to go for it. And yeah, it's expensive. And yeah, we don't have it all figured out. And yeah, it'll be a wild ride. But for us, the way that the Hopkins family is thinking about these crossroads moments, and I invite you to maybe just join us in thinking this way, is that saying no to God is actually way more expensive. Saying no to God is way more expensive, way too expensive. And so Journey, every single one of you, you're facing your own crossroads moment right now, aren't you? You all know exactly what it is. Lots of you, it's causing you a whole lot of heartburn. And so the question becomes, what's God asking you to say yes to right now, today? What's God asking you to say yes to right now, today and the question becomes will you say yes are you going to go away sad and are you going to leave a bunch of other people sad because you think the price is just altogether too high would you take your stuff and set it aside and I just invite you to get still and quiet before the Lord I just invite you to bow your heads and close your eyes and I just want to speak into this time. What's God asking you to say yes to today? Might it be for you today, it's all about a personal relationship with him. You've been running from God for an awfully long time. You've been trying to hide out. You're like, no, I don't want to give up control. I don't want to give up my heart and life and your crossroads moment today might be saying yes to Jesus I give you my heart I give you my life I give you everything that I am here here I am maybe for you your crossroads moment is a relationship maybe God's actually watched this been inviting you to get out of a relationship because it's a mess and you know it's a mess and it's making a mess of your life and it's making a mess of a whole bunch of other people's life crossroads moment today might be to just stop that relationship just nope no more 
Maybe your crossroads moment is you saying yes to a spiritual conversation that God's been asking you to have with that person and you know who that person is, don't you? You've been neglecting it, you've been putting it off, you've been praying that God would send someone else. But it's you. It's your assignment. Would you say yes and tell them about what it means to follow Jesus? Tell them about what it means to have a personal, intimate relationship with the God of the universe. Maybe your crossroads moment today is this initiative, this idea that God's put in your heart. He's given it to you and you've been stuffing it away and you know that it would change people's eternities. But you've just been pushing it down and to squash it because it would mean that you'd have to quit your job and rearrange your whole life and you might have to move and no. What if Jesus is asking you to say yes? today maybe for you it's about the way that you think about your money to this point in your life maybe for you you've thought that the whole point of the money thing was to accumulate as much as you could before you died make the biggest pile that you possibly can of stuff and possessions what if your crossroads moment is to begin to give that money away for the kingdom of God for the glory of God To not hoard it, but to be generous. Maybe for you, it's adoption. Whatever your crossroads moment is, just say yes. Just say yes to God today and then walk out these doors and go get about it. Be about it. Order your life around it. Give yourself entirely to Him. Yes. And quit going away from these crossroads moments all sad. Stop leaving other people sad whom God has in mind for you to conduit his stuff to. Just say yes. And this whole saying yes at the crossroads moment, it isn't about you and me. It's about you and God. And so I'm going to ask you to declare your yes to God right now, right here and right now. If you're saying yes to God in a crossroads moment, I'm just going to invite you to real boldly slip your hand up and just say, I'm saying yes right now. Just slip your hand up and go, yep, I'm saying yes. Yeah, hands all over the room. Way to go. Yes, 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 yes. You're saying yes. And God's saying, way to go. Way to go. Way to get in and on with him. God, I pray for us every single time that we face a crossroads moment that we would say yes to you. May the price of saying no be too high for us. Make us yes, people. Please, God.